dismiss middle schoolers at this time. Middle schoolers are going to go with Miss Eileen upstairs, the youth room. Parents, that's where they're going to be. The rest of us, we're going to continue in our Ephesians study, Ephesians chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 15 because last week we ended at verse 14. Ephesians 1, you'll find it right after the book of Galatians, first chapter. We are going through the prison epistles. And Ephesians the first one of those who we're going to study. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Jerry will slip you a Bible so you can follow God's word with us. Now if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that as we ended at verse 14 of Ephesians 1 last week, that Paul the Apostle has just finished telling us that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have been chosen, we've been adopted, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, we have obtained an eternal inheritance, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So all of these truths have been flowing from the pen of Paul the Apostle, taking us into the heavenlies. It's one of the most glorious sections of all of the Bible, as we were told who we are in Christ and what he has done for you and for me by his grace. So after he talks to them about the Lord in verses 3 through 14, he, he gives his greetings in verses 1 and 2, and, and then he begins to tell them the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Now in the remainder of the chapter here, he's going to talk to the Lord about them. And so, Father, as we are going to continue in this marvelous chapter, I pray that we would be attentive right now, settled into our seats, having cell phones turned off and are on silence because we want to be free from distractions. We know that you're speaking to us through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit teaching us and that's our prayer that as these next few moments that you are the one that is our teacher. So Lord bless this time. Open up our ears and our hearts spiritually in Jesus name. Amen. I think it's a wonderful model for us to follow that after we talk to people about the Lord as we share the gospel with them as we give them the truths of God's word and, and share with our family, share with coworkers or perhaps neighbors, whoever it might be that is linked to us in our lives, that after we talk to people about the Lord, uh, then we are to be ones that we talk to the Lord about them. That is an intercessory prayer. So Paul models something very practical and very important for us that we should be praying for others. And again, we can learn so much from the prayers of Paul that are recorded in the scriptures. Matter of fact, this is the first of, of two prayers that are in this and offered up in this epistle. And Paul, as he prays, first of all, remember that any prayer that we see in the scriptures, we can learn so much from those prayers, uh, from Paul, from the other men and women of faith, that we see their prayers, we see their praises that are offered up in scripture. They're inspired by God. We learn so much from them. And also, it shows us the priority of the things that we should be praying for. So let's pick up our text again at verse 15 of Ephesians 1. We read, therefore, in other words, because of all these spiritual blessings that you have in Christ as, as we were taken up into the heavenlies, therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So after Paul tells us of all the heavenly blessings, the spiritual blessings, 
that we have in Christ, because of Christ, his love for us, what he has done for you and for me, and what's been provided for us, as we looked at all of that quite extensively over the last couple weeks, after telling you about the Lord, now I do not cease, he writes, to give thanks for you and making mention of you in my prayers. And what a, a great comfort it must have been for those believers to know that they had Paul the Apostle praying for them and praying for them without ceasing, giving thanks for them. Now remember that as Paul is writing this letter, he's in a Roman jail, he's chained to a Roman guard, and, and Paul was limited, obviously, in the ministry and what he could do. But I think that as we consider Paul at this time, as he's waiting to go on trial before Caesar Nero, under house arrest, being guarded by Roman soldiers, that I think that Paul did more ministry in prison than a lot of us do out of prison. And that is, first of all, he wrote these epistles that are called the prison epistles, not only of Ephesians, but Colossians and, and Philippians and Philemon. It was Paul that uh, was witnessing to the, the guards that were watching him and chained to him. How do we know that? Because one of the prison epistles, the book of Philippians, he says, those of Caesar's household greet you. Well, why would they greet him? Because they were brothers in the Lord now. And Paul, I'm sure, can you imagine being chained to Paul the Apostle for a 12-hour shift? Do you think he would witness to you? Of course he would witness to you. So people were getting saved and, and some of Caesar's household. But also one of the things that he did that, that we can learn from as we read this today and consider it is that he prayed for the Christians continually and constantly. And as we do learn from this, we can learn that we are to be ones engaged in prayer for others. Whatever situation that you might find yourself in, you might think that, well, I can't do much. I'm limited in what I can do at the church or in ministry, and that may be true. But one thing that all of us can do is that we can follow Paul's example and really be praying for one another, being men and women of intercessory prayer, and that's so important. And, and I would ask you, whatever state that you are in, that you and I are to be ones, that we continue to pray without ceasing for one another. And I know that when I have somebody that says to me, you know, Pastor Jeff, I'm praying for you and your ministry. I'm praying for your family. I'm praying for the church here at Calvary Chapel. I, I find that to be great comfort and, and that people are praying for me. And notice again that Paul is praying for them as he hears about, he writes here about their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for one another. So these believers in Ephesus, they're doing well spiritually. They're doing well in their faith, and they were loving one another. And Paul says, it motivated me to pray for you. And again, I want to remind you that we should be praying for each other, not only when things are not going well. You see, uh, we do pray for others, brothers and sisters, and those of, that we know that are going through struggles and hard times. We pray for them certainly, and we need to be doing that. But we need to remember to be praying for those who are doing well spiritually. Because as I mentioned, you know, uh, as I've mentioned many times and oftentimes, that as you are growing in your walk with the Lord and in your relationship with Him and the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ, as you're serving the Lord, as you're, you know, uh, just excited about the Lord, that we know that the enemy is going to come against us. And that's not only individually, but your family and this church corporately. That's one of the reasons why I think it, it's a comfort to me to have the men that come on Saturdays at 7 o'clock every Saturday and they're praying. 
There are men in this fellowship that are consistent in doing that every single Saturday, and they're praying for this church. They're praying for people that are struggling. They're praying for those requests, but also they're just praying for us as a church. And what can happen is, is that we can just kind of kick it into cruise control. We can get complacent at times when things are going well, and we don't want to do that. Uh, we, we want to make sure that we're vigilant about praying and praying for one another and praying for this church. Because we know that eventually the enemy is going to come against us, right? He's going to come against your family, against you individually. The world's going to come against us. So we learn from Paul. Not only do we pray for those going through hard times, but for those who are doing well in the Lord and loving the saints so that they can continue on in the things of God. And here how, is how Paul prays, beginning verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him. So my prayer is that you would have the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of God. Now, the most important thing that any of us can possess is true knowledge of God. There are so many opinions and false concepts and beliefs and ideas concerning God. Uh, God is this, and God is some impersonal force up in heaven or some impersonal God. Uh, they have different ideas about the Lord. But you cannot know God by searching yourself. That is uh, one of Job's friends you might remember in our study recently of Job. Uh, he asked that. He said, can a man find God by searching? Who by searching can find out God? Well, you can't. Now, we do know, as Romans chapter 1, verse 20 tells us, that his invisible attributes are seen in creation. In other words, as we look at creation around us, we know that there was a creator, wasn't there? There's a creator. The, the world here, the design, the complexity, diversity of the ecosystems and the life, it didn't just happen by chance. There was a wonderful creator. And then it would be David that wrote that the heavens declared the glory of God. But when it comes to knowing him specifically and personally, and the truth about God, he's a personal God, the creator of all things, that, that he is the true only God that there is of the universe, how he's provided salvation uh, for you and for me, his truths for us. It, it comes by revelation as you study the word of God and as the spirit of God opens up our hearts to the revelation that we can then really come into understanding God as he's revealed to us. The most important thing in our Christian lives, the most important thing in anybody's life is to know God through Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that you can have relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me because I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we know that as that is explained to us, as God opens up our hearts to us, the most important thing is knowing him, our personal relationship with him. is more important than anything else in this world because we have forgiveness of sin when we come to know God through Jesus Christ. We have eternal life. We have the abundant life that he has for us in this life as well. So having that personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, Paul's praying for spiritual wisdom. You cannot obtain a spirit of wisdom and revelation apart from the Holy Spirit and the word of God that is given to us. Now, it's interesting because why would Paul pray for this, for the Ephesians Christians? And what I mean is that don't they already have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. Paul has just acknowledged that they've been sealed in the previous verses by the Holy Spirit of promise. He's not praying that they be given the Holy Spirit, but he's praying for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
And we know that in the book of Revelation, for those of you who studied Revelation, in chapters 1 and 4, there's a reference to the seven spirits that are before the throne of God. And one of the things that, that people ask me is, what does that mean? They're confused by it. We know that there is not seven Holy Spirits. There's only one Holy Spirit. But it's making reference to the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit that we can learn from in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, for you note-takers. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, one. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit illuminating and enlightening the heart. And that's what I believe that Paul is praying for here. We continue in this prayer of Paul's, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So Paul praying that our eyes, that is our spiritual eyes, would be open. God wants to open uh, your eyes. The scriptures tell us that Satan has blinded the eyes of those in the world. Paul's prayer is that we may know things, spiritual things, but they come to us as the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. May your understanding be enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, when we read the word hope in the scripture, it's used differently than what we use the word. We say, I hope that, you know, the weather's good next week. You know, we use it with a sense of uncertainty. But when you read it in the scriptures, hope, it always refers to in the Bible that which is coming, that which is ahead, that which is certain. And it's a personal opinion of mine that one of the, the problems with Christians is that their eyes haven't really been enlightened continually, day by day, moment by moment, to know the hope of his calling. In other words, that we as Christians, we know that we're going to go to heaven. Certainly we do. But do we live in the reality of heaven? Do we clearly know it and see it? You see, our spirits need a fresh revelation and understanding. And I believe that's what Paul is praying for. That, hey, we are going to go to heaven and life is short. And I know that you hear that from me a whole lot, but it's true. And I pray that all of us would have our eyes, our hearts in light, knowing the hope of his calling, that we are truly going to go to heaven. And what happens when somebody really makes that their own, when we get it down into our hearts, when we really have revelation and understanding that, hey, I am going to be going to heaven. I have the hope of heaven. And when that really becomes a part of our lives, then we will find that it will change what's important in our life. Not just a head knowledge of, of yeah, yeah, one day I'm going to go to heaven. I'm saved, sanctified, justified. But your heart is really impacted by it. I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. And then it will cause you to prioritize the things of eternity, not prioritizing the things of the world. And you won't always be complaining about life and always bummed and discouraged and blue and in despair because you really see in your heart the big picture, the eternal picture, that life is short here and we're going to go to heaven. And the truth is, if you live for heaven now, you are going to get that peace that passes understanding and joy unspeakable and contentment now in this life. But if you live for this life, for this world, then you will really never find lasting joy and peace and contentment in this life. It will always be, I will be happy, you know, when I get this job, if I have this relationship, if I get this new toy, this new possession, whatever it might be, even if I have this ministry. 
and you are not going to be happy or have joy or have lasting peace if you don't realize and know that you have in your life and the heart, the hope of your calling, that is, I'm going to go to heaven. It's real. It is real. Jesus would say to his disciples in John 14, you know the text. They said, let not your hearts be troubled. And why was he saying that? Because Jesus with his disciples for the last time before he went to the cross in that upper room. And he's talking about, I'm going to go away and I'm going to suffer and die. And, and where I'm going, you can't come right now. And, and all of you are going to be made to run and scatter this night. And they were very troubled about that in their hearts. And Jesus would say to them, let not your hearts be troubled. And here's the way to not have a troubled heart. You believe in God, believe also in me. And in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is saying there in John 14 that this is the key to overcoming a discouraged, overly stressed, troubled heart. And we get troubled hearts, don't we? Keep focused on the hope of your calling. And what is coming, and that is heaven. And we're so blessed to know that is where we are going, that the glory awaits us. Paul would say that the light afflictions that we now experience, and I think Paul's saying a light affliction, he was beaten up all the time, and the persecution and tribulations that he went through, he says the light afflictions that we now go through is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us, the eternal glory. What God has in store for us is going to be so awesome, so glorious, that we can't even comprehend it. And Paul wants us to have our sights on the things that await us on eternity. And as you focus on eternity's perspectives, then you will begin just to have a distaste for the things of this world, which are going to come to an end. And those things of the world which are going to leave you disappointed in the long run in this life. When we live in the hope of His calling, and understand, again, that life here is short, but a vapor, as David would write in Psalm 39, as we saw just recently on Wednesday night. James writes it in his epistle. It's but a vapor in comparison to eternity. And I want to live for eternity and prioritize eternity and focus on it. And then you will find suddenly the strength and the courage and the energy to move on. So the question is this morning is what's troubling your heart? What's troubling your heart? Is it the boss? Is it finances? Relationships? Whatever it might be? Perhaps it is some loss of some sort. Or you've been hurt deeply. And every single one of us, we get troubled, as I said, in our hearts. We go through those hardships. But as you go through those times, one of the things that's going to help you and bring comfort to you is that as Paul prays that you would have the spirit of wisdom that the Lord desires to give to you, that you may stand on his promises and realize the blessings that are in him that we see in this chapter that we've been talking about, and may you live and know the hope of your calling, and that is that you're going to live for eternity in heaven, and it's real, and that everything's going to be okay, that everything eventually is going to be okay. And as we do those things, your life is going to have that peace and joy deep down inside and strength and those things that we need to experience the abundant life that he has for us. 
So Paul, the apostle here, praying for important things. Hey, I know you guys in Ephesus are doing well. You have faith in the Lord. You're loving others. And I'm praying for you without ceasing. I pray that you would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the wisdom and revelation that we need in our lives to know Jesus Christ. May your eyes be opened up, enlightened to the understanding that you may know the hope of his calling. And then again, as we read in verse 18, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? I have that underlined in my Bible because this is an incredible verse to me. Paul noticed that he writes his inheritance. You see, usually we think of our inheritance in God, which is indeed glorious. It's eternal. But here Paul's talking about that we are so precious to God that he considers us his own inheritance. And when I ponder this, when I consider this, I marvel at this. You mean we are the riches, the glory of his inheritance in the saints? That we are his inheritance? Me? Personally, individually, it's like God is saying here, I can't wait to get you to heaven because you are my inheritance. That's incredible. You are valuable to the Lord. And you see, that's what Jesus was saying in the kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13. In verse 44, he begins to, to tell that short parable of a man going through a field and he finds a treasure. Now, in Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have Wells Fargo. They didn't have Colorado Bank. And so people, what they would do is they would bury their treasure, their money in a field for safekeeping. And once in a while, what would happen is a person would die without telling anyone where the treasure was buried. And as that happened once in a while, you know, then they would wonder, where is it? But in this story, this parable that Jesus talks about in Matthew 13, man's walking through a field. He finds a treasure. He sells everything that he has to buy the field. Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of God is like. A man finding a treasure in a field, and he sells everything that he has to buy that field. Now, when we think about it, we know that Jesus didn't buy the field so that he can have another field. Matter of fact, Jesus, in the interpreting those kingdom parables, says the field represents the world. He says that in the parable of the sower throwing seeds out. And in that, we know that, that the field represents the world. He bought the field so he can have the treasure. So again, in Revelations chapters 4 and 5, that heavenly scene is John is caught up in heaven. And we know that in chapter 4, he sees the things around the throne of God, the four living creatures, the, the, the 24 elders. And then in chapter 5, this scene unfolds where John, he, he sees a seven-sealed scroll that many interpreters believe is the title deed of the earth and how Jesus redeemed the world back to himself. And John, there in Revelation chapter 5, was weeping at first because there wasn't anyone worthy to open up the scroll, this title deed. And then one of the elders said to John, Hey, don't weep, for the line of the tribe of Judah, that is Jesus, the root of David, he's worthy and able to open up the scroll, this title deed of the earth that was handed over to Satan when man sinned in the garden. Hey, Adam, you have dominion over all the earth. But when he sinned, it was a fallen creation. It was handed over to Satan. That's why he's called the God, little g of this world. The prince of the power of the air is what he's called by Jesus. We know that it was in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Remember that Satan took Jesus up and said, All these kingdoms of the world, he showed it to them, are yours if you just bow down to me. And Jesus did not deny that they were Satan's to give. But you see, Jesus, he's our kinsman redeemer. 
redeem the world back? And why did Jesus, who gave everything, dying on the cross, we have been redeemed, not with silver or gold, but with the blood of the Lamb. He did it. And why did he do it? So he can get another planet? Another field? No. He's the creator of the universe. He has millions and billions of planets that are out there. He did it to get the treasure. Treasure is you. He's interested in the treasure. The man in Matthew 13, in that parable, didn't really care about the field. But he bought the field because he was interested in the treasure. And Jesus sees you as a treasure, and that's why he went to the cross, to redeem the world, purchase you out of the slavery of sin, to get you. And all of the things in the universe, of all of the things, it was you that is valuable to him. Never forget that. Matter of fact, you can say you're a gem to the Lord. You say, what do you mean I'm a gem, Pastor Jeff? I don't feel like a gem. I feel like more like a piece of dirt. I feel like, you know, I'm really an irritation to him. Well, you can go to the next verse there in the parable in Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46. Note it, note it and read it. And the next verse, Jesus tells of a parable who found a pearl great price. And again, the man who found a pearl sold everything they had and bought it. Now, what's a pearl? We know it's a thing of beauty. It's a precious gem found, of course, in oysters. And, but, you know, we know that how pearl is formed, a piece of sand, a piece of substance, a piece of dirt, it gets an oyster, and it's an irritation. And in dealing with that irritation, the oyster begins to secrete a, a liquid substance around that irritation. And that liquid substance begins to harden over time, and the greater the irritation, the more substance is secreted around that piece of sand, that piece of dirt, whatever. And it produces a larger pearl. In Matthew 13, here's a man that found one of great price, huge value. In the new heaven and new earth at the end of the Bible tells us that the gates of heaven are going to be made of pearl. And no wonder. Because as we go through those gates of heaven for all eternity, it's going to remind us that at one time that we were irritations, perhaps, speaking spiritually. That we are a speck of sand, a speck of dirt. But because he died on the cross, because of his love and grace towards us, he took this irritation in you. And he's made it a gem out of it, a thing of value and beauty. And we're going to be reminded throughout all eternity as we see those gates that are made out of pearls. He said, let me robe you with my righteousness. Let me wash you with my blood. Let me lavish you with my love. For you who know a little bit about, you know, pearls, do you realize that there are certain things that will harm a pearl? And you've got to be careful as you hand them down from generation to generation, from, you know, perhaps pearls from your grandmother to your mom to you. And one of the things that will begin to dull pearls in their beauty is um, if you have perfume um, that you have or you have, um, you know, um, lotion that you use on your skin, but also human perspiration will harm the beauty of pearls. So you got to be careful. What will harm you and me spiritually? Sweating. Trying to, to prove that you're worthy. 
trying to prove that you are righteous by sweating and huffing and puffing and boasting and striving. I'm going to strive and prove that I'm worthy of God's love or that I'm uh, worthy to be somebody in God's eyes. It ruins the whole model of God taking a speck of dirt, a thing of beauty, and value as he makes out of it because of the work of Jesus Christ. And the apostle here is saying that, that I pray for you, that you would understand the plan, that we're going to heaven, the hope of his calling. You are precious and valuable in his sight. You are his inheritance. You are a treasure. And he bought the whole world with his blood just to get you, just to get you and me. You and I are a pearl of great price. You're a treasure of his work. And all, I believe, of creation and the heavenly hosts are going to file by you and me in the ages to come. And they're going to marvel at his grace and his work and his love and making us something of value and beauty in eternity's perspective and in his eyes. It's great. Paul says, that pray without ceasing that you would know this. And when you know this, listen. You won't always be going around wondering, does God really love me? Does he really care for me? And woe is me. And a lot of Christians live in that way. Because they're not establishing these truths that Paul's writing about here in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. So may you really truly understand that you're going to heaven, that God views you as valuable, a gem, and let those at Ephesus and Calvary Chapel understand that they are your inheritance, your prize, and if they understand that, then they won't li live a defeated spiritual life. Paul prays for things that are really important. He really gets to the root of things. So after praying that they would know God's plan, then he prays that they would know God's power, verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above principalities and powers and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also which is to come. I pray that you would know the great power of God, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same incredible power extended to us as believers, according to the working of his mighty power, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now he's seated at the right hand of the heavenly places, that that same power is available for you and me as a believer, that they would know, he prays, the power of God. There is nothing in your life that God cannot work in. Whatever circumstance, struggles, challenges that you are facing and wrestling with. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead to the heavenlies, raising him above principalities and powers that is any demonic foes and every potential enemy. The same power is for those who believe. The problems as Christians so oftentimes is we try to find power as we link it to a program or a procedure rather than linking it to the power of God, to the person of Jesus Christ. Because verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Paul says, I pray that you would know the power of God, that he's put all things under his feet. He's the head of all things, including the church in our lives, in the days in which we live, we experience the difficulties, as I've mentioned, and the tribulations and discouragement. And Paul wants us to know that all things are under his feet. All things are under his feet. 
And he is the head over all things, including church. He is here with us. He's the head of the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, a lot of commentators will tell you it's probably speaking of the presence of the Lord in the church. Listen, he's here. He's all here. You ever, you know, isn't it discouraging when you need help and you, uh, whatever it might be, you go and you're dealing with um, help at, you know, you go into a store, you need to find help, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, you're bothering the person, the salesperson or whoever. It's kind of like to have that attitude. And it's like, oh, that's not very encouraging. It's discouraging, isn't it? What I'm saying is the Lord doesn't come here and say, oh, 930, I got to get over to Calvary Chapel today, you know? Some people got some problems. It always seems like they have problems, you know, these guys, and I need to go over there. And, you know, like he's not very interested. He's kind of like we're a, just a burden and, and a problem, and he, he kind of wants to hold us out at arm's length. No. You're valuable to him. You are his inheritance. He's going to take care of you, and he's here. And he sees you, and he hears you, and he knows everything you're going through. And he desires to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. That's a promise. And all things, there's nothing that you're going through in your life that he doesn't have the power to work in. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this wonderful prayer and these incredible truths that are given to us that we read in chapter 1. Not only the, the heavenly blessings that we have in Christ, but then, Lord, just this prayer of Paul reminding us how valuable we are to the Lord, that we have the hope of heaven that may be real in our hearts and may be lived out in our lives. And, Lord, that uh, the power of God is available to all of us because he is the head of all. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available for us to work in our lives. And, Lord, I do pray, just as Paul would write about the power of God, in Romans chapter 1, that salvation is the power of God. That the gospel, he said, he's not ashamed of, is the power of God to change lives because we become born again, just as we will see in the next chapter, that we were spiritually dead before we came to Christ, but he has made us alive. Regeneration, born again by the Spirit of God. So I do pray this morning, at this time, that if there's anyone here, that you're here, that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that you've never asked them into your heart to be Lord and Savior, that relationship with God doesn't come by coming to church. I can't save you. Calvary Chapel can't save you. Trying to prove yourself won't save you. It's only by faith alone in Jesus. It's a gift of God. Scripture is very clear. Faith alone in Jesus and what he did for you and going to the cross and redeeming you to buy you out of slavery of sin because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It isn't about being religious. It isn't about being a good person because you may be considered a good person, but here's the truth of the Scripture. None of us are good enough. We're not good enough. We've all fallen short of glory, God. We're all sinners. We know that. And Jesus came and died for you to take care of the sin problem. He died for you specifically and individually so that you can spend eternity with him. He loves you. It's a personal relationship with him. 
as you open up your heart to him. And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, he brought you here. He brought you here this morning so that you can give your heart to him and come into salvation. If that means anything to anyone, even if you're listening on live stream, that will you open your heart to Jesus right now? And you pray, very simple prayer, a prayer of faith, and mean it sincerely in your heart that Jesus, I come to you. I know that I'm a sinner. I haven't been a perfect person. And I come and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins because I believe you died on that cross for me. You love me, and I believe that. And you were put into a grave, and you're alive, and the tomb is empty, and, and you're knocking on my heart, the door of my heart, and I now open my heart to you, and I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying for me, and thank you for forgiving me, and thank you for loving me, and help me to live for you from this day forth, in Jesus' name.